Acts chapter 14, we're making our way through this uh, wonderful book of Scripture. And uh, we're on the, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And so we're going to watch, we're going to try to get through the whole chapter today. We'll see how far we can get and we'll take a look at, at, at what God has to say to us uh, this morning. Um, those, of who, those of you who have been um, uh, trained in the use of a firearm or maybe with a marksman, you know that the sequence of order is important. Ready, aim, fire. Ready, aim, fire. Um, the unfortunate tragedy is, is that many people live their lives with the same three words but in a different order. Whether it's an individual life or um, an organization or a leadership style, many people live with ready, fire, aim. Ready, fire, aim. And the result is that we live our lives without a singular focus, without a clear target, or one aim. And so as I was thinking about this passage this morning, my mind went to missionary Jim Elliott, who before his 30th birthday, his life had been taken by the people he was trying to reach with the gospel. In the summer before his senior year of college at Wheaton uh, College, uh, he wrote these words in his journal. He makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable, he asked. God deliver me, he continued, from the dread of asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the spirit that I may be a flame. But flame is transient, often short-lived. He's like 21 or 22 years old. How prophetic these words were for his life. Canst thou bear this, my soul, short life? And then he prays. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Now Elizabeth Elliot, who wrote her, the biography of her husband uh, through Gates of Splendor, wrote these words to describe what type of man Jim was. She said, the man who wrote these words was, was no recluse. He was an American college a senior, school champion wrestler, president of the Student Foreign Mission uh, Fellowship, amateur poet, and class representative on the student council. Jim was warmly admired by his peers. He was known as one of the most surprising characters on campus with a delightful sense of humor. And after graduating from Wheaton in 1949, Jim spent 10 days to be alone with the Lord in prayer seeking God's direction on his life, whether he should go to Ecuador or not as a missionary. And when he was given the assurance of the Lord that this was his will for his life, he, he was all in. And people tried to deter him. They recognized his potential, his leadership capacity. And they said, um, you, you know, you would be better served, your life would be better served by serving the church in the United States. And Jim replied with these words, I dare not stay home while the Kicha Indians perish. What if the well-filled church in the homeland needs a stirring? Or what if the church in the United States needs a revival? They have the scriptures, the Mo Moses, the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written in their bank books and on the dust of their Bible covers. And so with this resolve, 1952... Jim set out for Ecuador to reach the Alca Indians of the Quiche tribe. And by 
before his 30th birthday, his life had been taken. And some would say, what a waste. What a tragic waste. But Jim Elliott reminds me of another brother in Christ who had the same kind of resolve, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul stated his singular focus in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the task, or to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has assigned me. The task of testifying to the, of the good news of God's grace. Paul would say, my only aim, my life is not important to me, my only aim is my singular ambition, my one focus, my one drive in life is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord has given me. This, the question is, do we have that kind of a task? Do we have that kind of singular focus in our lives? Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas have been set out from the church in Antioch, Syria as missionaries to be witnesses of Jesus Christ and to make disciples of all nations. Luke, the human author of the book of Acts, has organized this chapter, this last part of their missionary journey around four places. And we're going to visit these four places in southern Galatia, modern-day Turkey today. In verses 1 through 7, we're going to be in a place called Iconium. And from Iconium in verses 8 through 19, we're going to travel down to Lystra. And from Lystra, we're going to go to Derby in verses 20 and 21. And then in verse 21, all the way to the end of the chapter, we're going to return home. And what I want you to see this morning is what happened in those four places. There's a key word that I want to bring to your attention this morning, and that is the word disciples. Disciples. We saw it last Sunday in the last verse of Acts chapter 13, where it says in verse 52 that the disciples... In Iconium, in the midst of all the persecution and opposition that they were facing, the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that word again. It's going to show up in verse 20, verse 21, verse 22, and verse 27, verse, verse 28, rather. So 20, 21, 22, and 28. And so let's read God's word this morning. I want us to journey through the four places with the focus on what does it mean to make disciples. If there is the one thing that the Lord Jesus Christ has left for his church to do, and that is to take the gospel into all the world and make disciples, how do we live with that kind of singular focus and singular resolve? Hopefully this will stay on. If not, we'll figure something out. All right, here we go. Uh, if you have God's word, let's read God's word together. In, in Iconium, uh, John, we're skipping a bunch of slides here, so if you want to hop down. Uh, in Iconium, what we have here... What we're going to find here is Iconium. Paul and Barnabas are going to have to flee. They're going to have to take refuge, all right? So let's read these verses here, verses 1 through 7. I'll make a few comments. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. Iconium was about 20 miles southeast of uh, Antioch, Poseidon, there in southern Galatia, where we were last Sunday. So they're going southeast uh, through the mountain range. Uh, they're on the King's Highway. They're going from... Mountain peak to mountain peak, right? And Antioch, Masida was a, a mountain city. Iconium was a mountain city. And they, uh, there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 2, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable uh, time there 
speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And the people of the city were divided, some side with the Jews, others with the apostles. And there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it. Here we see God's providence, God's care, God's watch care over the lives of his servants. And they fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach of the gospel. And so here we have Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, Poseidon. They traveled over to Iconium. And what do they do? They do what we see throughout the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas uh, take the gospel to the synagogue to present Jesus Christ first to the Jews. And we see that they spoke so boldly that many, both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks, uh, believed. And as we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, Wherever the gospel goes, it is most often always met with opposition. It was true then and it's true today. So don't expect that when you decide to be a witness for Christ and when you, in obedience, decide to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, don't expect that, that everybody's going to fawn all over you and they're going to receive you and welcome you. And No, just expect opposition, right? We just need to embrace that reality that wherever the gospel goes, it's going to be met by and with opposition. And so people came into Iconium and they tried to turn the minds of people against Paul, poison their minds. What I find interesting is in verse 3, Paul and Barnabas' response. People have come in to poison their minds, to turn them against Paul and Barnabas. And so verse 3, so Paul and, Paul and Barnabas hightailed it out of there. Isn't that great? Is that what your word of God says? Is that what your copy of scripture says in verse 3? Are you all with me? <laughs> what does your Bible say? They remained a long time. They said, okay, you're against it, we're, we're for it. So we're just going to stay here. We're, we're not going anywhere. The gospel's not going anywhere. We're going to stay here and we're going to uh, preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. Verse 7. And they continued to preach the gospel in spite of the opposition that they faced. And so they fled. Eventually when they learned that they were about to be stoned, there was a plan to stone them. And so they left and they, they took the gospel then from Iconium up to Lystra and over to Derbe. And so beginning in verse 8 down through verse uh, 19, we're going to read what happened in Iconium. That in, or rather in Lystra. In Lystra we're going to find Paul, Paul being stoned, uh, not with drugs but with rocks, right? Paul stoned with rocks. And left for dead. And so let's read what happens here. Beginning in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man. So uh, they get to Lystra. We read here in Lystra, not going to a synagogue. Evidently their Jewish uh, population in Lystra was small. There was no Jewish synagogue. And so they're meeting outside. And they're announcing, they're, they're speaking about God and uh, proclaiming the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul as he was speaking. And Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. And he called out, stand up to your feet. And that man jumped up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language. So uh, although Greek was the Koine language, the common language of the day, they had their own dialect. And all the people from Lystra are now speaking their Lyconian dialect. And they're saying this, the gods have come down to us in human form. 
And Barnabas they called Zeus, and, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he, because he and the crowd wanted to offer them sacrifices. And when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, they rushed out of the crowd shouting, now look at verse 15, verse 15 is a weight-bearing verse. Right, so when you think about like a building, a load-bearing wall, verse 15 is a load-bearing verse. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are humans like you. We are bringing you good news. We are evangelizing you. We are bringing you the gospel. Now notice what they said. Telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past... He let the nations go their own way. Yet he was not left without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Verse 19. We read it as all this happens immediately. Some time passed. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. And what did they do? This time it wasn't just a plan. They actually carried out their plan. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. All right, so we'll stop right there. So here we're in uh, Lyconia, and uh, like the, the, city, or, or the region of Lyconia, the city of Lystra. Lystra had been uh, colonized by the Romans, but they never embraced the Greek language. Uh, they had their own dialect. And so uh, Paul and Barnabas spoke to the people, there was a man who had been, been, been uh, crippled from birth. He had the faith to heal. Uh, Paul spoke to him. He jumped up. He started walking. And the response of the people was to say, hey, the gods are among us. Now, here's the interesting part. There was a legend in Greek mythology that Zeus and Hermes had actually visited the city of Lystra one time. And the gods had come down in human form, in disguise, and they had went to the people seeking help, and nobody had offered them help except two, uh, two, a husband and wife, um, uh, Philemon and his wife Bacchus. Philemon and Bacchus. And they took them in, and they cared for them. So when the gods left, when Zeus and Hermes supposedly left Lystra, they destroyed the city, and the only people that survived were Philemon and Bacchus. And when they died, they became pillar, uh, trees outside of the temple area. So you can imagine the city here. They have this as their mental model. The gods came once. We better not miss it again. This dramatic sense of power, this has to be from the gods are with us. Zeus is this, uh, Barnabas is Zeus. Hermes is the main speaker. That's Paul. And so the Zeus and uh, Hermes, and they started wanting to worship them until Paul and Barnabas heard what was going on, and they put a stop to that. They tried to put a stop to that idolatry. Opposition arose, except this time the opposition was carried out. And Paul went from being venerated as a god to being stoned by the people and drug outside of the city to be eaten by the vultures. How quickly he was disgraced. And we read in verse 20 what happened that he was cared for by the disciples and revived. In verse 20, they went back to uh, Lystra. 
Let's read what happens. And from Lystra, they went to Derby. And there in Derby, we read in verse 20 and 21 these things. But after the disciples had gathered around him, that is Paul, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby, 80 miles away. Could you imagine? Stone to the point of death, and now traversing over a mountain pass, 80 miles. These guys were tenacious, they're unstoppable. They left for Derby, verse 21. And they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. And we'll stop right there. We'll pick that up, the rest of that here in a moment. We don't know how long they were in Derby, but they did the one thing that they were told to do, and that is to make disciples. On their way back, uh, or no, uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so they, they made disciples in that city. And so uh, they had spent some time there working. And then uh, beginning in verse, uh, the second part of verse 21 down to the end of the chapter, we read of their return. And what I want you to notice of what happened on their return is that they were strengthening the disciples and they were establishing churches. Now think about this. In verse 20, uh, it says that they returned. Notice what it says they went. They returned to Lystra, where Paul had been stoned and left for dead. They were turned to Iconium where they, there was a plan to stone them and get rid of them. And then they returned to Antioch, which was Antioch of Poseidon, where we saw last Sunday, where they were driven out. Now let me ask you a question. If you had that kind of behavior, are you going back? If you received that kind of treatment, are you going back? What would possess these men to go back the way that they came? Well, that's the only way home. No, that's not the only way home. In fact, the shortest distance home was to keep on going east. Through the mountain pass down into Syria, they're home. But oh no, they're going back the way they came. Why? Because they had a purpose. And the purpose was to bring the gospel, or it was to strengthen the disciples and, um, and, and establish the churches. Look what we read in verse 22 down at the end of the chapter. Uh, we'll start back up in verse 21. Then they, won, uh, then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, doing what? Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And this is what they said. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And after going through Poseidon, they came to Pamphylia. Pamphylia is in the region right along the Aegean, or the Aegean Sea there, the Mediterranean Sea rather. And, uh, and they came to Pamphylia, and, then, and they preached the word in Perga. That was the city that they first landed in. That's where Paul became sick, most likely contracting what many believe, uh, malaria. And then they went over to Adaliah, which was the port city. And from Adaliah, they sailed back to Antioch, that is Antioch, Syria, and they had been, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. And notice what happened on arriving there. They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You're thinking, what door? <laughs> Man, there's, you're driven out. Your uh, plans are to stone you. You were stoned. And what door was opened? God opened the door. God is always at work to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Right? And so the final moments that we have, allow me to spend that, allow me to, um, Spend the few moments that we have to think through what does it take to live with a singular purpose of making disciples? What does it take 
Five essentials to making disciples. You're thinking, well, you're not going to get through that in a short amount of time. Trust me, we're going to get through in a short amount of time. Here we go, ready? Number one, five essentials to making disciples. Discipleship begins with conversion. Discipleship begins with conversion. This is that weight-bearing verse in verse 15. Uh, the whole idea of turning. Notice the emphasis on conversion. It, they, they went into each city, each area with the gospel. Discipleship begins with people hearing and receiving, believing the gospel. You cannot be a disciple without conversion. Verse 1, they went there and they spoke in such a way that many believed. Verse 7, they stayed and they continued on proclaiming the gospel. Verse 20, they went into Derby and they brought the gospel. They, in verse 25, they went to Perga and there they spoke the word of God. But most clearly is verse 15, when they were in Lystra and the people wanted to offer them sacrifices, thinking, imagining that Paul and Barnabas were the Greek gods of uh, Zeus and Hermes. In verse 15, Paul said, we bring you the good news. We're bringing to you the gospel. And notice what he says in verse 15. Um, uh, we're bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from the worthless things to the living God. That's the essence of conversion. It's turning from empty things, vain things, false things, that things that cannot save you to the true and living God. And he defines who this living God is, who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything that is in them. The God who is the creator of everything. But conversion means turning. What does conversion mean? Give me one word. Turning, right? Turning. Turning from empty things to the living God. This is conversion. This is where discipleship begins. Discipleship means turning from, the, uh, uh, turning from secularism. The secularism says there is no God. Turning means, uh, conversion means turning from humanism where man is God. Conversion means turning from uh, uh, hedonism that says pleasure is my God. Conversion means turning from materialism which says money is my God. Conversion means turning from paganism that says there is no God. Conversion means turning from pantheism that says everything can be God. And they brought this message of the gospel that you need to turn from empty things, vain things, to the living God. Without turning, there's no discipleship. The Apostle Paul, when he was standing on trial for his life, spoke about what the Lord Jesus had called him to do at his salvation. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, we read these words. The Lord Jesus speaking to Paul said, I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Did you see that? They needed to turn from the power of Satan to God. They needed to turn from darkness to light. In his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul would write what others were saying about the church in Thessalonica. He says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The question this morning is, have you turned? Have you turned from the false things of this world to the living God? Discipleship begins here. Discipleship isn't, um, you know, you suddenly living the best you ever. That's not discipleship. Discipleship begins with conversion. 
where you turn from the false gods to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Number two, discipleship is measured by continuation. Discipleship is measured by continuation. Did you catch what, uh, how, the disciple, how Paul and Barnabas uh, strengthened the disciples there in verse 22? Notice, let's look again at verse 22. Uh, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, verse 21, verse 22. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Saying to them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, right? Paul and Barnabas exhorted, encouraged these new believers in Jesus Christ to continue in the faith. Now, true discipleship is marked, measured by continuing in the faith. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, if we're going to be a disciple, if we're going to be his followers, we must continue with him. We must abide in him and his word must abide in us. Discipleship is not fire insurance, you understand that? Where I pray a prayer, get me out of hell, and then I can live for myself and do my own thing. Conversion is turning from these false gods to the living God, and then I continue on in that way with the living God. That is what uh, conversion and discipleship looks like. I continue on in that way. Uh, this was the message of the early church when Barnabas was sent by the apostles in Jerusalem up to Antioch of Syria. He encouraged the Christians there and exhorted them to continue to remain true to the Lord. Acts chapter 11, verse 23. When he, Barnabas, arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true, continue on with the Lord uh, with all their heart, to the Lord with all their hearts. Last week, Acts chapter 13. When Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, Poseidon, they encouraged the believers there to be in the faith. Uh, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 43. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. And so discipleship is marked by continuation. Now notice what their message was. Notice how they spoke. Did you catch what they said in verse 22? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now let's think about that. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Their message to these believers to continue on and say, listen, it's not going to be easy to follow Jesus Christ in this world. You're going to meet with op you're going to be met with opposition. There is going to be uh, affliction. There's going to be trouble in front of you. Uh, the prosperity gospel that is so popular and so prevalent today that God wants to give you the best life ever and he wants to make you healthy and wealthy. That's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. Notice what they said. They will go through, uh, we must go through, we must go through many trials, hardships, afflictions to enter into the kingdom of God. Right? This isn't the kind of trouble that says, oh man, my car won't start. Right? That's not the trouble. Like, uh, I, I can't pay my credit card because I ate out too much last month and I have too many uh, downloads, uh, stream, whatever, app, you know, you got it. All right. <laughs> um, I, I can't pay my credit card. That's not what he's talking about. 
These are the afflictions of following Jesus Christ. Listen, brothers and sisters, listen to me. What we have known in the United States is changing in front of our eyes. There will be a concerted effort to silence we, the Christians. The moral and social agenda of our nation is anti-biblical and ungodly. You and I, we are the salt and the light. And as followers, disciples of Jesus Christ, our lives must be marked by continuation. We must go through many hardships, trials, afflictions to enter into the kingdom of God. So discipleship begins with conversion, is measured by continuation. Number three, the third essential to making disciples is discipleship is evidenced by Christian fellowship. Discipleship is by Christian fellowship. I don't want you to miss verse 23. Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Paul and Barnabas appointed for them elders in every church, in every city. Tonight at our members meeting at five o'clock. I just want to give you a brief update on where we are with the elder process at, at, at fellowship here. Not significant uh, progress, but important progress. I want you to be updated on that. We need to be in prayer about this. But the question that we need to ask here ourselves in this, question, in this passage here is, why did they appoint elders? Why did Paul and Barnabas risk uh, trouble and hardship to go back to, to these cities where they were rejected, oppressed, and harassed to appoint elders? What is the significance of this? Because we in the body of Christ need to be under the spiritual care, watch care of godly men. Listen, we don't drift into obedience. The opposition of the world, the desires of the flesh are too great. And so God has formed his body, the church, so that together we might live as God's people in this world. He's given us spiritual gifts so that we might edify one another. We need the body of Christ. All of this is implied in that verse where it says that they went for, uh, to them and appointed elders for every church, for them in every church. I, I think of what an early church father wrote. Uh, no man can have God for his father unless he has the church for his sister. John, John Wesley wrote, no man ever went to heaven alone. He must either, he must, uh, either find friends or make them. And the idea here is this, is that in, in, I've said it before and you've heard it, is that the Christian life is never to be lived in isolation or independence. We're, we're not to be lone rangers. How easy it is for us in this age to, well, I just listen to a podcast, I don't need that church. I can just watch something on television or online. I don't need to be part of a local body. That's not how God has designed his church. We have to figure out how we're going to meet together. And whatever the future holds, whether it means that we have to, like they do in China, small house churches, whatever we have to do, we have to figure out how we can, as the people of God, meet together. Life in the church is essential to discipleship. Our problem, our challenge, is that we have made the church 
what God has not intended it to be. For the most part in the United States, we have treated the church as a business enterprise. We've treated the church as a business enterprise. And by that, um, we'll hire the paid professionals to do the ministry. And I'm going to look, I'm going to shop for a church. I'm going to look for a church that meets my needs. And when the services decline and I don't get what I need, well, I'll just, I'll, you know, I'll go from Costco to Walmart or whatever, you know. And we apply that to the church. Listen, the church is not something we attend. It's not an event we mark on our calendar. The church is who we are. Discipleship is evidenced by participation in Christian fellowship. Number four. The fourth essential making disciples is discipleship is supported by prayer. Do you see what they did? They appointed elders in every, in every church and with prayer and fasting. Uh, and praying and fasting. And praying and fasting. They committed them um, to the Lord in whom they had put their faith. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. Be joyful in hope. Uh, be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer or be devoted to prayer. And so prayer is the atmosphere, the environment, the culture of discipleship. Prayer is what makes discipleship happen. And that the, and you go through the book of Acts, one of the things you find out about the church is that the church is a praying church. That without prayer, we're not going to be doing anything for God. There's not going to be anything of eternal significance happening. Discipleship is going to be support. The efforts of the church are going to be always supported, undergirded by prayer. One of the things we're going to be doing this evening at members meeting is we're going to be taking time to pray together as God's people, as God's body. And number five, uh, discipleship. I, I have discipleship uh, results in, I was thinking about this last night. It might be better to say discipleship is grounded on a firm, com firm conviction. Discipleship is grounded on a firm conviction. Let me try to explain it this way. Notice the last part of verse 23. Having prayed, having appointed elders for them in every church and prayed and fasted over them, what did they do? They committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The idea here of the word committing is to take something and set it before someone. They took these believers, these disciples, these newly formed churches, these recently appointed elders, and they set them before the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas, they couldn't be everywhere at one time. Paul and Barnabas, um, they couldn't care for the church 24-7. But the Lord could. And the Lord would. And the Lord did. Those of you who know me, right? I like to get my hands on everything. You don't have to agree so fast, Pam. I'm not sure what you said, but I think you said, I love you. All right, here we go. Um, uh, and we can't control everything. And we can't control and 
watch over every decision everyone makes and make sure that everybody's walking with the Lord, but the Lord can watch over everyone. And so we need to put our lives and the people that we love into the hands of the Lord. We need to put the church into the hands of the Lord. And Paul and Barnabas, I think, were modeling for these new, newly formed churches and newly appointed leaders, and they're modeling for us what it means, this, this core conviction that ha- all of our efforts have to be grounded on this core conviction, and that is the Lord in whom we've put our belief is sufficient. That's the conviction. It's what Paul would write at the end of his life to Timothy. This, this is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know in whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's the conviction. A discipleship, uh, 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 it, it begins with conversion that we turn from the empty things, we follow the Lord, we turn to the Lord. And it's marked by a continuation that we continue on with the Lord. It's evidenced by Christian fellowship, that we're not going to be just people who show up for an event, we're going to live out our identity as the people of God. Discipleship is going to be supported by the atmosphere of prayer. It's going to be grounded on this conviction that the Lord in whom we have believed is sufficient. Jim Elliott, that missionary, that hero of the faith, uh, would write, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 30 years old, his life was gone. People say, you're a fool, you wasted, you lost it all. He said, oh no, I gained it all. He would also write this. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt. Every situation, believe it, you believe to be the will of God. Where has God placed you? Your job? Your retirement years? Raising children at home, your school, where, that's where God has placed you, believing that is God's will. Live to the hilt. The one thing, make disciples. Paul said, I consider my life worth nothing to me, except that I might do this one thing. Finish the race, complete the task that the Lord has assigned to me, the task of Proclaiming the gospel of his grace.